Welcome to the 7th Art Podcast, a podcast about cinema. My name is Christopher Heron, and I'm the host of the 7th Art. It's also a video magazine that you can watch at www.the7thart.org. I'm joined here today with the other two-thirds of the 7th Art, both producers Brian Robertson and Pavan Mundi. Hi, Chris. Hi, Pavan. We are uh, here to discuss Patricia Rosema, a Canadian filmmaker. Uh, All-around great girl. Yeah. Cool. She's um, a local fixture... Brian, who's speaking now, he facilitated this interview. Um, maybe you can f- give some background All on right, that. So this was maybe our fourth fourth issue? Yeah. Third. Third issue. Same issue with Bruce McDonald. I had been working at a video store for a few years, and Patricia was a regular. She would come in and um, just kind of hang out. She was really cool. Liked to talk about films. Um, we were all big fans of hers. Um, so, yeah, we, uh, we decided to... Uh, Ask her if she would come out and sit down with us, and she was more than game. At that point, she had just written a manifesto on uh, the current state of filmmaking in Canada. She wrote that for the Globe and Mail, and yeah. we kind of rushed this interview to get it in. Yeah, and we, out in time, we knew right? we, it was coming out. It hadn't been out yet, right? Or no one? Yeah, we discussed it. Yeah, it was out. Yeah, it, it had just out. come out. I think right. this was like the first interview she did right after that article. It's funny that we discussed because that at the time that was the impetus, and it was it seemed like such a revelatory thing. She was really um, dusting like, it up. Yeah. And now looking back, this interview is exclusively uh, watched by people in high school who have just watched her adaptation of Mansfield Park. Yeah. And um, how do you? What basis is there for that? Because every time it gets embedded on all of these oh, Jane Austen sites, and most of them are like, for uh, one teacher somewhere used it as part of her teaching guide. So there was like, really, well, yeah. So we met Patricia at a bar called the Salvador Darling on Queen Street, Queen and Dufferin. Um, really cool bar. But how did you feel about the interview itself? And I know I like it. I thought it was great. We um, at one point she shushed me or something. She asked a question and I gave and I called out. Do you know remember what it was? No. I said. It was like a Woody Allen film or something, and I threw a title out. Oh, uh, yeah, and, and you were wrong. Said, you, were no, way, you were way off. I was way off. You, were like, like, tw- no. you said a title that came out like 20 years later. <laughs> I don't know if it was Woody Allen, but it was something. It was a film, and, and she turned around and was like, what are you talking about? And it was... Oh, it was Coen Brothers, where she was talking about Blood Simple, and you said uh, Lady Killers. No, I said Cruel... Uh, cruel Intention. No, not Cruel Intention. Cruel Intention. Cruel Intention. Intolerable cruelty, and she was like, "No, you're, you don't know what you're talking." About. Yeah, Patricia was very playful in yeah. this interview. She's very she animated. Plays the camera yeah. as well. Yeah, and this is what I mean. Chris, Chris talked at length with her about her film, The White Room, and um, that's sort of one of Patricia's films that isn't really uh, discussed anymore. Um, and she was more like really over the moon that Chris had referenced it, and uh, she was really happy about it. You like that film? Yeah, I do. I like that film a lot. Um, and I think that hopefully this interview uh, inspires people to check that one out and maybe some of her other lesser known ones. Of course, we talk about her debut film, The Plate at Can, uh, I've Heard the Mermaid Singing. Yeah. Um, which for a lot of people is their introduction. If you haven't seen that, that's a great place to start. Yeah. And uh, then enjoy this interview where we discuss literally everything she's done. Enjoy. Enjoy. So you wrote this article for the Globe and Mail that everyone's been talking about. Have they? Yeah. What have they said? Good things. Really? 
What, what was kind of the impetus behind writing it? Well, surprisingly, they just asked uh, a bunch of filmmakers um, to complete the sentence, what the Canadian film industry needs is. And then I just didn't stop. I just kept doing a whole bunch of them, thinking they'd pick one. And then they wrote back and said, oh, no, it's fantastic. Let us send a photographer and we'll, we'll it sounds like a manifesto. We'll, we'll, you know, make it the centerpiece and make it a manifesto. So I was, in fact, um, uh, you know, slightly unnerved, but not unnerved, but uneasy with the word manifesto because I thought that sounds so directive. They're just um, thoughts on what I'd like to see happen. Um, but I suppose, you know, if you get grand, that's what a manifesto is. <laughs> so, um, so no, it wasn't an article I wrote. It was a bunch of points that um, that the they uh, chose to include in their entirety. Um, but yeah, my, my, my goal was just stay alive. Don't get stuck in the past because, um, you know, the film, film industry uh, is changing constantly. I've been in it long enough to see major shifts and the money goes here and the money goes there and the, you know, the medium. I, I'm old enough to have people go wax enthusiastic about videotape. It's fantastic. It comes in this little box and you can tape over it as many times as you want and there's never any loss of quality when you tape over it. It's like, uh, and it, you know, so there's a, this enthusiasm for each new technology, which I tend to have. I'm a real technophile, but anyway, I want to keep everyone alive to the new um, reality as far as I understand it, which is there's never been a higher demand for film fiction. There's never been a higher demand, but you have to be prepared to have it on this thing, on this thing, on that thing, on that, you know, on, there's going to be a thousand different um, venues for it, on internet only, on, so you have to be, I think, I, I try to ignore the fact that, of, of where it's going to show, because you can, an, can't anticipate that, you know. Ten years ago, no one knew what YouTube was, now every, people are watching everything on YouTube. Including um, this. Including this, you know. <laughs> Funding was kind of a prominent point in all of the, the kind of numbered bullets that you uh, you highlight. Um, I was wondering how funding has shifted in your career, like your own experience. Well, my first couple of films I could fund completely out of Canada. And that was grants or government? That was um, Ontario Arts Council, Canada Council, you know, the Ontario Film Development Corporation and Telefilm. I could put a film together in my own country and make the film. Um, the second film, because the first film was fairly successful, the second film I could, I got some money out of England just to mix it up because they wanted to and I thought that'd be nice. Um, and then, you know, by the time the third film came around, it was getting more difficult and now that's really very hard. So, uh, unless you keep the budget really, really small. Um, and I haven't, um, received any public funding, uh, Canadian funding for, like since the, you know, I don't know, for the last 15, 18 years, something like that. So I've been working outside of, the funding has been outside of Canada since, well, long time, since my third feature. And it sounds like the point you make about um, funding within CBC, it, it was kind of like how Germany functioned in the 70s where TV would offer the money so that they could screen it. And then in Canada, that's kind of what Moses Snymer did for a while. But you're kind of suggesting that 
this would be all public, so the, it would be the CBC that was funding, and then it would get its secondary release on the CBC? Um, I would love to see Canada have a, a, a full um, public broadcaster where we're, our work isn't interrupted by commercials, where it is just a service that is provided, you know, um, and it's funded by our tax dollars. I think that um, countries should have one place for that. And it seems kind of, the CBC is neither fish nor fowl, yeah. it's kind of harshly dependent on, on advertising, but, and then, you know, advertisers have their own demands. They, they expect something for their dollar. So, um, and they won't necessarily put their money into the one kind of show. And so it's uh, industry that is dictating, again, what goes on on the CBC. And I think that there should be just one place. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really pro-business, you know? I'm pro-sell um, your wares, make something people want and need. But I think there has to be a place where um, those pressures are, are, are not, um, you know, dominant. I think it's really important for our country to have a, a voice for maybe unpopular views, a voice for new, interesting, strange stuff that people in you know small towns are going to wince at. But you know, but we know that it's important it gets out there. I still think there should be a major effort to to, to engage uh, a large audience. I think we should try to make the CBC you know hugely popular at certain times of the day, but I just think there's got to be, it's like, it's like school. Kids aren't required to, schools aren't required to make money. There should be a, a place in our culture where we don't have to make money. Um, it shouldn't all be geared towards that art. There has to be a place for um, something, uh, something other, and that's something that's truly Canadian too. No, I think um, anyway. So that that's that was my that was one of my points on the manifesto. Make CBC this huge draw for major talent that goes to the U.S. now because um, there's not enough opportunity sometimes or money here, and make this an incredible place for us for 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 people to come back and do their mini series that they can't get off the ground in Hollywood because it's too interesting or too smart. <laughs> Well, that also brings up what I kind of see as the, the paradox with the CBC is that to get something interesting like you're describing requires to kind of them to take a risk. But because that money is, is public money, there seems to be this kind of apprehension to do anything that they think is not completely populist, something that would appeal to every possible demographic, like this white whale that they're chasing. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I mean, I was just involved with Don McKellar and... Bob Martin Michael. on this Mike on this television series Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays it got terrible ratings almost nobody in the country saw it um, I think part of it is it's um, it's an, a very unusual beast it's this heavily serialized comedy half-hour series which is a very unusual thing and it's about kind of um, you know people with <laughs> problems um, but they and they didn't promote it well enough I think but they are they 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 support it, and I think and they're developing it again. They continue. Well, they you know they have to wait until the budget comes down to actually be sure. But they're acting like it's going to go again. So and they I think they are in fact willing to have some shows that aren't you know 
McDonald's hamburgers that aren't crowd pleasers, but that are, you know, a, a really refined uh, piece of nutrition. <laughs> what I find interesting is, do they take into account the online views? Because, I mean, I personally watched Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays through their site. That's the other thing. Is I, I, I don't know if that's part of the counting. Because sort of the younger, interesting audiences often is, it watches things online and not, you know, on TV when it's broadcast. Very few people, I don't even know when Modern Family <laughs> is projected, right? Or, or, I mean, it's broadcast. I don't even know when it is. I only watch it because I PVR it, you know? So. so starting back with Mermaid, like, have you noticed that there's a, a, a secondary market? I'm always interested in that, like on television for films that have maybe been around longer. Do they continue to, to be shown? I, I get, you know, I get some revenues from different countries and every once in a while I find out that it's on you know, IFC or or, or um, uh, CBC will sometimes run Mansfield Park. Yeah, I, will, I mean they're old movies and they're not. Um, but yeah, they they keep going. I'm curious if that has to do with the the distribution I got, especially with Can, like the that kind of um, the Canadian uh, trope of needing to be validated outside of Canada to be then validated within Canada. I'm wondering if that was something you noticed at the start with Mermaid. Well, I, I hadn't made a film before, so I yeah. had no point of comparison. But yes, I got validated with that film outside of Canada, and then it, um, you know, it, 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 people came here. Um, but it, but people really came and saw it a lot. And there are films that get awards outside of Canada and still Canadians don't come, right? It was a, it was sort of a popular film, it was a populist film. It actually um, respected and nobled the, uh, the artists and everyone and I think that's actually was its big appeal. I think that um, people really felt like the film acknowledged that even those of us who have to go into insurance sales um, at some point, probably thought we could be a dancer or a, or a you know or, or or a painter or a singer. You know that there's some artistic element to us all. But so yeah, so people went in Canada. I'm not so um, critical of the fact that you need a validation outside of the home um, because that's how every country works. You know, I don't. You've got brothers or sisters, and you know they're just your brother and sister, and then you see them on getting an Academy Award, you know, holy shit, that's my brother's sister. You know, you, but you, you wouldn't have um, revered them in the same way inside your home. It's just not the nature of close-knit, you know, communities. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a really natural process that if people outside acknowledge you, then um, you, 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 the insiders start to take notice. Was that film developed in a way that would, did you anticipate it having such a broad appeal? Because I, I found an interesting quote about it that said that it's the stroke of genius in the film that it's, um, it's kind of measured and does not go too extreme on certain topics to alienate its crowd. And I found that very odd because it didn't ever strike me like the film was deliberately like holding back at any point. I didn't, I didn't expect to have any audience at all. I really didn't. I and I, I I'm from a very very um, Calvinist, mm -hmm. you know, uh, background that's very stern and not a lot of praise and not a lot of, 
enthusiasm or, you know, and, and you do things for the right reason and you don't do it for money or for reward. You know, it's, it's, it's a, I'm not religious anymore, but I still, you know, bear the <laughs> marks of it. So I made that film um, thinking maybe 10 people will see it. Don't start thinking about fame and fortune. Do, like, if those ideas crept into my head, I'd like slap myself down. I really did. I remember having, was, I was pacing once and I was thinking, wow, what if it actually really took off? Because I think I had a little screening and people were laughing and I thought, what if it really took Don't think that way. <laughs> don't think that, I wasn't finished it yet. And I said, don't, because that's going to pervert the process, which, I'm not so uh, austere with myself anymore. I think there's nothing, nothing wrong with kind of, you know, looking into the eyes of your audience and seeing if they're confused or irritated or bored or, you know, it's it's important to pay attention to. So the answer is absolutely no concessions were made to the audience. Yeah. There's absolutely no um, anticipation of their their reaction. I think my metaphor at the time, people were saying, what's it feel like, what's it feel like? And my was that it's you're kind of humming a tune to yourself and then you suddenly realize that you've been on a microphone and the world is hearing it and they're singing along and they like it. It was a complete surprise. The response was a complete, like, well, how lucky am I? How lucky, because I wasn't hoping for it. It just came, it was just, I was stunned. It just I had no anticipation whatsoever, it was perfect. It's like Christmas, when without even knowing Christmas is coming. <laughs> you just wake up one day and it's this thing called Christmas. <laughs> it, it's an idiosyncratic film, both in its kind of story and style, and it reminded me... That was deliberate. Yeah, yeah. Because that, that I really remember thinking, oh, I don't want it to have the tone like every other movie. I don't want it to feel like other movies. And I, some people would say, you, you got to work on the tone. It's so odd. I said, yes, it's odd. It's like I really, really wanted to hang on to my own weird voice. It seems like it's unique in that way, but it's also of a piece of Canadian cinema. I found a lot of films from that period to be different, but all have all share a kind of self-confidence and, and idiosyncrasy. And I'm wondering if that was kind of a climate, because it doesn't seem as strong anymore. It, doesn't, it seems like that's a quality in Canadian cinema that's that kind of brazen confidence in, in the style and the the story and it being unique. Really? Yeah. I wonder why. I'm thinking of like maybe Peter Mettler especially. Well, yeah, Peter was a real, and he had a big influence on a lot of people, right? People don't necessarily know, you know, who he is in a broader context because his films are really so um, quite, you know, abstract and philosophical and contemplative. But um, he had a big impact on people, uh, Bruce and, Adam and myself and Jeremy Podesta and um, all kinds of people. Um, confidence. Well, there was new money. Yeah, you know? that's what I was thinking. There was suddenly this new, Canada had been the land of documentary and there was this decision, let's do some, fi do some fiction. And a couple of the people who got to pick who gets to make what had some good taste, I think. I think, you know, Wayne Clarkson and you know, Bill House, and uh, there were several people. There was, you know, um, uh, Tekka Crosby, and uh, oh, yeah, there was a bunch of people, but they were, they, they picked 
films that I, I like, you know? Um, so they're, I'm not, you know, I think if I had been born at a different time, I might not have succeeded. Yeah. You know, um, it was, there was a flood of money and there wasn't this whole cultural filmmakers yet. Um, and there wasn't, we didn't have a whole developed, you know, writers versus uh, directors. We, if someone came in with a script that kind of held together, they funded it at that time because there's this, this wave of cash. So, you know, I was one of the lucky ones who was standing and I was one of the first in line at, te you know, at Telefilm. So for their, for their fiction money. Um, so maybe that's what gave us confidence. And nobody said anything. You just made the movie. Nobody had these rules about how movies were made. And I think we're close enough to, you know, it was so long ago, and we were close enough to a kind of auteur mentality. And, the, you know, I think all of those filmmakers were Nouvelle Vague-influenced people. Um, and I think there was a concept of film as art very much then. So a single voice was allowed to be be heard. You know, I think now there's a bit less patience for an auteur work. It's interesting you mention that because I, I really love White Room and I'm, mm. I find it very similar in many ways. I have it in my car, sorry, I was bringing it for you. I, I forgot, I left it in my car, but we can go in after. Okay. <laughs> I find it for, in many ways like a continuation of, of Mermaid, but it it had a different response and I never... I'm going to kiss you for that because no one likes it. <laughs> Not knowing, there's a few, there's a handful of people who really get it, and I really feel affirmed because it's something strong in it, you know. And I and I and I was so derided at the time; it was just dismissed as a joke, and I'd lost it. And it was like, so for people to sort of find something in it, it makes me really happy. <laughs> it's like having a child that everyone else pays and doesn't pay any attention to and considers ugly, and someone says, "Oh my goodness, that's a beautiful child." But I'm so confused because, like, seeing it. I don't, I don't see anything that would be ugly about it, especially if, if for the same reasons that Mermaid was so accepted. Think so, of the context, though, because I make this film that's warm and it's got a really sweet central character and it's funny and it's, you know, and it's kind of magical and it's and it's um, and it has, um, you know, a lot of love in it, really, in it, and it has a lot of. Um, it's it, the colors are even warm, and then I do a cool, you know tough, uh, critical, um, the people you tend to invest in suddenly they turn and then you don't like them anymore and um, it's prickly, it's a, it's, a, it's, a it's a tougher work, you know, and people felt, those that had the critical community that had embraced me and mermaids felt like I'd turned on them yeah. um, and that's a danger when you're a creator that, that people um, feel like, ah, here's one I like, that Oh, you can't do that. You, I, you, I'm embarrassed to have liked you. And then they really turn on you. There's a special venom saved for people, you know, who make something that's really different from their earlier work. So, and, uh, so yeah, the, I, I suffered from the response of that. You were talking about the, the videotape earlier, which is so interesting because both White Room and, and Mermaids share that kind of self representation that kind of occurs with a video aesthetic in, in it's like kind of the surveillance camera in, in Mermaids, but the kind of flights of fancy that occur in White Room, they have a deliberately uh, video aesthetic, they're, they're 
they're maybe more blue in their tint, but they also have undercranking or, or, or they're slowed down. Um, I'm wondering what, why that choice was made to have that, those kind of imaginative moments have an aesthetic that was very self-referential, or at least referential to video at that mm. time. Well, <laughs> you could just be pointing to some weaknesses in the technology at the time, right? Because it's, you know, effects always look dated very quickly. You know, the, the state of the artifacts, five years later, everybody's like snickering at, at how, how cheesy they look. So <laughs> maybe it's just, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but maybe they're just cheesy because they don't hold up. Um, but... Um, I don't think they're cheesy. No? But there's like a really video-y. Um, I'm trying to think of my reasons for it. I can't. I don't. It's like a hundred years ago. And well, one, I, one and moment that I can maybe refer to specifically is kind of the the the, Mar the, the interview of Margot that they found on like a, a tape like that you would have. Oh, well, yes, that was definitely, yeah. that was definitely video. Yeah. No, I was, um, that was just the technology of the time, right? And it was a... Um, and I love the, the grain and yeah, the dirt exactly. of it. I yeah. love how dirty it is. It's decay. I'm, I'm really attracted to decay. In fact, I, I paint now, and I, I'm, I've, got, I've been for years saying, oh, I wish the film didn't have to be so photographic all the time and so crisp and so clean, and I try to find ways to dirty it. But then you can really easily get uh, uh, stuck at the surface of the image. If you play with it too much, yeah. and it's and it calls attention to the the physical the physicality of it too much, and takes away from what's going on. Whereas with a photograph or a painting, that doesn't happen. But now I think the technology is actually there to keep it dirty. But that is one way. If you go into video and you use past technologies, then um, it, it could have this gorgeous wacky grain and blown out highlights, and you know it was really. Um, it's just partly just pure aesthetic pleasure for me to do that. And it's partly, you know, I, the story was that she was a watched person. She was a person who was, all, you know, seen entirely, you know, like most famous people we know. We only know them through, uh, through technology. And so I really wanted to heighten that fact when we saw her. And when you move into Night and even Mansfield, there is that kind of formalism that still exists, and I'm curious how you balance the story, which is always very communicative, and then these kind of flights of, of formalism that kind of crop up every now and again on the film. Well, I write, I write the story partly just to justify those sequences. Oh, yeah. I really do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I've gotten away from that, and I was just recently I thought, I think, why am I doing just people in rooms? I used to do, you know, flying and walk on water. What, like, what, what happened here? So I actually, f I'm going back. Oh, that's great. I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit more, um, I think of it as metaphoric, you know? Um, but uh, more, 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 and I guess another term would be magic realism, um, I suppose. But uh, I, I'm, I'm getting back to that. I was very focused on beauty for a while. I wanted every, I used to say, if, it, if, you, if, if, if this shot can't be played in a loop on your wall and be pleasing, then don't do that shot. Don't use it. Don't include it. Um, and then I started to think, oh my God, I'm getting like, like Vanity Fair or something. Yeah. Like I thought it was, it was getting too look at me, um, you know, kind of vain. Um, that the films could, were starting to look vain. 
So I started to go towards really, really rough and raw, and I did this HBO thing that had no lighting. I didn't let any actors comb their hair. It just, it was just, it was, you know, two cameras handheld. We didn't even have a tripod on the, on the drop. Is it Tell Me? Uh, Tell Me You Love Me. And it was like, it was raw, rough yeah. looking, right? It was, and they wanted to shoot in HD, and I thought that would be too crisp, <laughs> and I sort of really pushed 16, because I felt more, Cassavetes and you know scenes from a marriage, which was, and, and you know Bergman, that th those were the two kind of godfathers yeah, of yeah. it, you know. Um, so that looked really dirty, and it felt really real and raw, and you know, it felt very intimate. I didn't, I didn't want anything slick about it. And then I've, I've been working that way on a couple of things, and now I feel like okay, it's natural. Like I know how to make it feel like you're just there and it's caught. That's the whole goal. And now, if I can add the beauty onto it, then then we're singing, right? Yeah. And, and I can make it look just sort of accidentally that beautiful. It would be great. Um, so yeah, I, I write stories that allow me good shots and yeah. sequences. I love sequences. Sometimes I think I'm just like a high-toned video music video director because I'm really, really happy when it's just music and picture. Yeah. I'm really happy. Oh, I could play with that for days and cut it and recut it and. That's when, and sometimes I, I wish I didn't have to make people have a story. <laughs> it's, not, it's not entirely true, but my pure pleasure is just, if you were to say, Patricia, what do you want to work on right now? It would be music and um, image alone. Well, it's interesting, because especially with Night, it seems like the critical reaction was so focused on story that it kind of missed like the fact that the, the film begins and ends with these kind of lyrical, transformative, um, no dialogue moments that get no attention whatsoever and even like the kind of slow motion shot of the dog at the end like those are really great beautiful moments in that film and it's like they're also wedded to the story but they don't get no comments it's on formally moments. my most conservative movie though yeah right there's like no framing device no, yeah. there's no it's just beginning to end it's everybody's you know there's some crazy behavior putting a dog yeah. in a fridge or whatever but it's not you know it's and that was actually um, consciously um, uh, uh, compensation for the fact that it was a lesbian relationship and I wanted to just make it a really classical movie I just wanted to make a kind of a classical two people from opposite sides of the tracks and they have this one this barrier and they overcome it and they come together and they run off together I mean I wanted to make it a a classical movie so that I, I didn't have much formal play I didn't have you know dreams or kind of metaphoric flashes in someone's brain like yeah. in white room or um, yeah so that but I can't help but play once you're there with a camera <laughs> and a hundred people who are willing to go along with you on this ride I can't resist uh, you know really playing so taking a conservative story to tell and maybe not as conservative story, like a mode that is conservative to tell and not conservative story, that's often seen as kind of the antithesis of what, you know, many people uh, advocate, even going back to like the Cahiers Cinema in, in 68, like how the form has to be as radical as the story. But it's interesting when you mention that now, it seems like there is a radical aspect to take a conventional thing to tell an unconventional story. That's the thing, that's the, it, that's the subversion, yeah. right, is um, take something that 
you know, the most most of the audience is going to have a little bit of reaction to it. this. Yeah. This is a long time ago, right? And it's it, the world has entirely changed about, you know, sexuality. But the uh, at that time, like the ad for that movie was banned in the New York Times. Oh, really? It was banned. There was two women kissing, and it was close-ups of their heads, and they were, uh, you know, like a, you know, about to kiss, and on the same page. Um, I mean, no, I mean, at the same time, the same time of release was a Johnny Depp movie with him and a woman. Just ex it was like exactly the same ad, and that was fine. Yeah. So you know, I in my cheeky whatever, I wanted them to draw a mustache on one, <laughs> just draw it on French. the photograph, yeah. and then and then submit it again. But they wouldn't. They, they it wasn't allowed. We had to submit something a little less sexual, you know. Um, so it was a different time. So to take. Uh, a really easy form, and the colors were warm. The skin tones were warm. It was burgundy, and it was gold, and it was woods, and it was you know everything was warm and easy to digest in a way. Um, so that that was uh, to, to, it was the sugar on the pill. <laughs> um, with the liberties in Mansfield Park, did you notice the same kind of? Reaction because that's also kind of radical the way that you adjust the story and the, the process of adaptation. Right. Well, I guess I did think it was um, uh, a radical approach to an adaptation in general, which mm -hmm. is to take the author to f facts about history. I mean, here's the fiction, and I took facts about history and about the author and put them into the fiction. Kind of like Naked Lunch, too. Yes, actually, yes. Um, and that, you know, some people just resisted in a huge way. And other people, very knowledgeable people about um, um, Austin, really respected it. So, you know, some people just hate adaptations, I think. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's that the only true adaptation would be if you filmed the page. Um, but I think people underestimate what a radical thing it is to do an adaptation. You know, there's, there's this faithful fetish thing that doesn't actually make sense because I think you it's a profound change it's like taking this glass and making it into a flame you know it's not it, it, it it's a it, you can't just take the story and put that story up on the screen and think that that is somehow faithful I think it's actually Unfaithful to sentences, to style of writing, to paragraph length, to just everything that's that is not just the story, you know. You know. So anyway, that yeah, I, I got um, um, you know uh, a really interesting reaction, and I got a very political reaction to that film too. Is people, oh really? Oh yeah. The um, the in 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 England it was really interesting because the conservative newspapers would. Um, Resist it, and you know, Time Out and the Independent and the Guardian liked it. Um, and you know, the conservative was, would say, "Well, it's best to leave these things under the surface, like slavery." <laughs> like slavery <yeah. laughs> and I thought, "Are you hearing yourself?" That's <laughs> like, of course, you want to leave it under the surface. Um, and whereas you know, the other ones said, "Isn't this great?" We're we're sort of showing the financial underpinning or the uh, the financial foundation uh, foundation to all our civility and yeah. graciousness and um, so now it was fascinating it was also fascinating to see the difference between England and 
um, America, in North America's response. There were jokes that flew in England and that didn't fly in Canada, I mean in Canada or US. It was a very interesting thing. But um, I, it, it, it's so easy to be radical when you're dealing with Jane Austen. Like just doing handheld is considered outrageous, right? Because they somehow think that your images should look like the paintings of the day for like, yeah. and why. Because yeah. I do handheld and they say, Oh goodness, are you sure about that? Or I'd do a screamer close up or something or another and they'd there was a shutter that would run through the audio through the crew. I had a great crew, but they had done, you know, their period pieces, you know. Well the heritage film were like dominated the eighties. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're still very there I there, I in uh, auditioned actor after actor who'd only ever been wearing frocks, <laughs> right? Who'd only ever had, you know, period wigs and bonnets it's interesting that the actual the places where you diver, diver, uh, diverge from the, the the text are also formally the most kind of obvious such as like the direct address to the camera for the letters or um, the fact that they I always do that I'm so attracted that it's um, it's uh, Grey Gardens the documentary yeah. so what attracted me you've probably heard me say that before but yeah that was the first time I saw anything like that and I thought that's interesting. That's that's interesting. Even the the, the slavery mm. component, which is more of an addition, is the um, the slow motion shots during the the sketches or the conclusion, which is kind of these brava uh, camera movements. The slow motion during the the the, the um, when the sketches are revealed. Sketches was a, a, a kind of fixing a mistake. Oh really. <laughs> So people, maybe smarter people don't reveal that kind of stuff. But um, I, no, it just it flew by too quickly. That moment didn't have the weight it needed. When I when I shot it, I shot it. I you know we were really short of time that day, and I just shot it. And I was happy with the performance. It happened the way, but it just didn't have the weight it needed. Yeah. yeah. So I needed to make it bigger. I needed to. Take that moment apart and and lay it out more carefully. Let it deserve a bigger score moment in the score, and it was really um, needed weight. That's gravity. so interesting you mentioned that because um, it's something that is not really in the text. Like the affair, it seems that once it gets adapted into a film, you're able to kind of show and let it sit there. Those qualities that are in the original text are kind of passed by more through inference, like the news. Like that, the affair is revealed in the news. Yeah, it's not shown, but like when you adapt it, you get to show it, and you, like you say that the sketches needed to be on there more because of the weight. I found that to be a really interesting component to the the adaptation of film. Well, that's joy of film, right? That's the, uh, you know, who wrote a really beautiful piece about is Michael Cunningham about yeah. the hours. Did you read yeah, that? Yeah. Is that beautiful? The way what it, what he talks about what film mm -hmm. gave his story. Um, yeah, there's just details and flicks of the eye and gestures and um, and the more I do this, the more I think that what a director does is control emphasis. And you know, I decide whether this cup is front and center of the shot or whether it's back, and then you know where where you put the camera or where you put things in relation to the camera is how you control emphasis. So, um, and I discovered that through writing something that I didn't direct. 
through Grey Gardens. Because I would envision these scenes and I'd write them down and then hand it to the director and then something else entirely different would come across. And I think, yeah, but the glass needs to be visible to the audience. It's not visible. But if you make it too, if you do a cutaway of the glass, like I had this little motif where um, a glass is um, uh, knocked over at the beginning when they're at their height and they're rich and the maid comes quickly, cleans it up. And then uh, halfway through when they're at their sort of, or three quarters of the way through and they're at their desperate, desperate worst, it's knocked over and it's left there and it's broken in a cat like so. Um, and then finally, just at the very end, a glass that's been lying there is just upright. Just tiniest, <laughs> tiniest little motif, right? He forgot it, uh, the director. Great director in a lot of ways, very, you know, um, but, uh, but that kind of little tiny motif. Now, you couldn't have a close-up of the glass because that would be screaming it, and you couldn't have um, it too far back that you wouldn't notice. So where you place it in relation to the frame was, was what I realized I couldn't control by, in my writing. Well, I'm so happy you mentioned that because my question about Grey Gardens is, it to me seems like it would be so frustrating to write an adaptation because when you're when you're performing that act, you're also thinking visually and how this is going to turn into a film, like the compositions. It must be so hard to write the adaptation. And well, that was you, I don't call that an adaptation actually. Well, I guess you would say it's a remake technically because it is a film that's being. It's turned. not a remake either. It's a remake of the documentary section. Sure, yeah, yeah, that's true. But even that isn't because I went to the Maisel Brothers um, uh, uh, office in Harlem and um, looked at the outtakes of the outtakes because yeah, yeah. they made a movie of the outtakes, uh, the Beals of Grey Gardens, and then I looked at the outtakes because what I was really curious about is, do they? Are they performing? Is it action and then they go from this to this? Or was it just a continuous behavior that they happen to catch? And do they repeat? Do they do a lot of takes? Do they, you know, so that, so anyway, we remade the documentary, some of the kind of iconic parts of it, and then also added yeah. some stuff that wasn't seen. Um, and then, yeah, just invented, really. I mean, invented from letters and journals and everything we could find, um, the, 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 the story up to the point of the documentary. So I don't know if you call it, I, I don't know what to call it. I, I really don't know what that is. Because it's not, is it a remake with docu? It's, I guess it's a biopic with remade documentary, yeah. documentary remake elements. Yeah, intercut A reimagined. No, but it's not. The documentary isn't reimagined because that's very that's, slavishly yeah. repeated, right? Anyway, so it's some new creature. Think of a name. So when you went there, where was that in the process of the Beals of Great Gardens? Was that already being conceived, like that this was going to be cut? Or? Oh, no, the Beals was done. Oh, okay, it was long okay. done already. Yeah. yeah, Beals was done. So I went and just saw the outtakes of see, the yeah. outtakes. Yeah. But anyway, um, so what's frustrating, yes. Was it frustrating to do that? It's thrilling. I mean, basically, you're a young thing, but no, but you'll just find that, you know, you, you, it's exciting when you begin and you're allowed into the industry and someone dares, someone calls you a filmmaker and you dare to say, I'm a filmmaker, and then you do it again and it's this high and you do it again and it's this high and you do it again and it's that high. And then you, you, everything you have, you have to do everything just to stay alive and not, you become bitter or bored or, um, uh, just stay new to it. So I knew that engaging with that story, 
yeah. would just keep me alive. And I, I, and to just write it was new to me too. That would keep me alive too. So, no, it was it was very exciting and. He definitely directed it in different ways than I would in some things, but I'm so sorry. I thought it was a legitimate yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, so, yeah. Um, it's uh, it was a new it was a new twist on what I do, but it really made me respect directing more. Actually, I was talking to Wally Shawn, who was in that kids, oh, yeah, kids yeah. movie yeah. I did, and um, I said, uh, it's funny, it's just writing makes me respect directing, because when you see it just all uh, cut together and it's not your, what you imagined at all, you think, oh, I'm so sorry. I just got an answer. Hi, I'm in the middle of an interview of being filmed answering my phone. <laughs> it's okay, I forgot to turn it off. I'll call you back. Bye. That's me being obnoxious. Um, and I said, um, because then I saw an edited version of it, and I was so depressed. I just thought it's boring. Yeah. It's a boring movie. It's like I thought all the stuff I thought would be alive is dead. It's just dead. It's not. Doesn't catch you. Doesn't have that. And then. Uh, you know, I gave my notes, but they kept working and working and working. Studio HBO, they, they, that's the thing, they, they keep working and working and working on it. And I saw it and I had goosebumps yeah. and I was just, so I, you know, I went from thinking writing is everything to thinking, ooh, directing is really huge, to now I think it's all in the editing, so <laughs> I don't know what it is. Um, no, it was a fascinating process. So Kit Kittredge, would you say that that would be an example of getting more streamlined? Because certainly a lot of critics responded to seeing seeing that film as being a more formally streamlined film. Than streamlined as in? Less ordinary? Of hand. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that was just a... Um, that wasn't formally interesting in any way. <laughs> I think that, to be, to be honest, the very fact that it's a film targeting a specifically younger audience but is still set so so far in the past to me it was interesting because i was trying to imagine what it would be like to be in the target audience in this contemporary society and having to like watching something that was set so far i know like, it seems like the opposite of what the the, the people who have the property would want almost but they would want to make it contemporary yeah, and hip yeah, yeah. and like and let's let's put in some internet stuff yeah, or something yeah exactly. no i know no um it's 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 this giant um a machine in America called American Girl, yeah. and that's it has almost nobody knows it here. Well, nobody is like the brand recognition in Canada is like twenty yeah. percent, and it's eighty percent in the U.S. <laughs> so it's a, it's a whole thing. So I get a script from someone I really like and trust, who used to be at Merrimax, and they say, "Do you want to do this um, screenplay? It's a it's a kids movie." and um, and I said, uh, American Girl, because I didn't know American Girl, because I had kids in the zone. Yeah. Um, and uh, I said, I don't know, it's like a Sal and Dolls, you know, like, what is this? She said, just read the script, have a look. And I read the script, and it was okay, and I kind of worked on a rewrite of it. And then they said, you have to decide by tomorrow, we've got Abigail Breslin, and we're going to shoot, you know, in, um, you know, a, a couple of months, and it's got, like, it's a go, go, go. 
So I thought, ah, it's about a girl, lead girl, very, very rare. Yeah. Um, uh, who wants to write, more rare. Who's writing for social justice, more rare. At a time when America is um, kind of embraced as the, uh, sort of uh, the idea of a social net, of a, of a safety net. Um, and I just had this feeling like that with America, especially North America, the Western world was on the brink of disaster. That there were just articles just starting to come out about foreclosures and it just, I thought, there's, there's a whole you know, generation of children who think that they deserve this, the level of wealth they've lived with and they should know it's not a shame to, lose, to not have a lot of money. Um, that there's no shame in a reversal of fortune and it's not your fault and it's not your dad's fault if he loses his job and it's not your... And it just seemed like writing for social... And then scapegoatism happens whenever there's an economic downturn. So I just, it seemed like good, good um, values that, that um, I liked and when do you get, you know, a kid, of, uh, that little girl's acting ability um, to lead a thing and I could be popular with my kids and my, you know, my kids were in it and I can visit the set and I'd been looking for one family film to really honor them, you know, like really do something that they were proud of and proud to know the person who did. And then the actors come rushing, all the, and all they all have kids. Yeah. Joan Cusack, Stanley Tucci, you know, um, Chris O'Donnell, Julie Ormond, they all had kids. They all, Wally Shawn didn't. Yeah. I said, Wally, do you have, do you, do you have kids? Because he was talking really sweetly to my daughter. And he, and he said, no, I've never been that strong in that department. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, very, we actually stayed friends. He's a very sweet, funny guy. Um, HBO was involved in, in the production of Well, this was supposed to be HBO's um, entree into the world of features. Yeah, yeah. And they wanted to do a kid's, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a feature film. So this was their big... But the two honchos didn't get along that well, um, and so it kind of fell apart. Well, it's, you know, complicated the way these things always are, but the, the company, the pic picture house that released it fell apart. Where does something like this in relation to say something like Happy Days where it's also kind of one-off but it's not seen as like a feature like it, it's somewhat it's rooted in something like in the case of Kit Kittredge it's the, the HBO it's the the property that it's representing and in an equally but opposite way you're representing the property of Samuel Beckett yeah well Samuel Beckett is more pure et dur, right <laughs> I mean it's, it's like it's that's this rare opportunity to yeah. engage with a mind of that at that level, um, and uh, not have to pander to audiences, not have to make anybody pretty, not have to, you know, think about anything other than what was in this man's mind and what is it now? What? How can I do honor? How yeah. can I honor this? And you know, the big decision in that was where to shoot it, because Happy Days is about, as you know, a woman who's um, up to sand, up to her waist in sand in the first act, and then up to her neck in sand in the second act, <laughs> and, it's like, and that is usually done on stage, and I thought, okay, but we're filming now, 
he wasn't thinking someone's on stage. He was thinking someone's in a wasteland. Where is a wasteland? I could go to the desert. And I thought, oh no, continuity with this man. Nightmare, <laughs> nightmare. So I thought, volcano. Like, no life. Just volcanic. So, so we went to the top of the volcano in Tenerife. And there was, a, you know, I saved it. I love saving juicy things. Um, and then, you know, you just see you sort of medium claws, and, 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 and then you cut wide, and there's no life as far as you can see, and you're on top of this mountain. Um, yeah, that, no, that was just that, again, I am only attracted by content. Yeah. Scale doesn't matter. TV, film, internet, YouTube doesn't matter. It's, is, is the point, is the, is there something I haven't done that maybe I didn't even know I wanted to do, but that I attracted to doing now. Um, is it, is there, uh, and are they people I want to have dinner with? Yeah. You know, because that's, I've made that mistake a couple of times. But um, yeah, that's that's really how I decide. It's because in the end, all that people don't know what country or they don't care. It's the thing. Yeah. Is that thing going to speak the kind of words or the kind of feelings that I want to speak in the end. How about how that's distributed? Because it's it exists now, especially in like a uh, adaptations of Samuel Beckett, and it's kind of like Montreal Vupau, which is like also where your work is deliberately sitting aside the work of others, beside the work of others. How, how does that feel after you've created it to know that it's going to kind of be viewed in that context. Yeah, people want to make a competition out of uh, yeah. any, any kind of compilation always. That's just part of life. That the competitions create a, they're a story outside of your yeah. story. Um, I try not to pay attention to that, you know, because it's not, I mean, even award shows, these are, those are kind of artificial competitions that get some excitement around the work, but the work is the thing in the end. People don't remember who won what award, or you can put it on your CV, but it's not like, who cares? It's just, you know, the thing itself. When you're 80, when you're whatever, you know, you're almost dead, the thing itself is the thing that matters, not that statue or that you gotta, that someone said, oh, Rosamund's part of the compilation was better. You know, that. <laughs> I was thinking more optimistically. I was thinking like, because the subject matter or the source is the same, your voice comes out more because each part that you watch, you're that oh. much more aware of this is the, the person that's Oh, I doing see. It. Oh, interesting. Um, well, um, the, it was presented to us as, you can't fuck with this. Right? <laughs> because it, back in, he sued, he sued people, yeah. right, for, for, for altering his work, for making, mm -hmm. he had the, the, a theater troupe in Amsterdam, I think, a bunch of women did, did uh, Waiting for Godard in, in with all women, and he sued them. Like it was <laughs> hilarious. Um, but anyway, so that was the uh, mission statement: do not, do not um, affect this. But I, within that, I still. So the big decision I, within that, I so I, all, everything was about staying out of the way. Get out of the way. This yeah. material is brilliant. Get is. out of the way. You know. Um, so I tried to edit as little as possible. I tried to move the camera as little as possible. My, I, what I discovered just technically was this wild thing where if you don't cut much when you do, it's like an explosion in the room. It suddenly feels really... Yeah. So I would really very carefully pick where the cuts would be because I knew that that was going to be a giant jolt. Um, I didn't... But then 
I, you know, that, that was my choice at the time. And then Anthony Mengele's, have you seen his? Um, he's all over it. Yeah. The filmmaking is all <laughs> over it. The sound of the camera, the moving, the, it's so, it's cut. It's very, very filmic. And I love his. Yeah. And it made the Beckett estate furious. Oh, really? And it almost, you know, like, really destroyed that. the relationship. It was a huge problem because his was so, it was a new thing. It was a film. Yeah. He made it really, really a film. So, you know, I think Beckett should, you know, and, and his family should just let it go, let yeah. it be reinterpreted, let it be really adapted into new forms in the way that they should, you know, that they that people want to. I think people should, once you make a work, let the world engage with it, reinterpret it, take pieces from it, re-edit re it, you know? How does that um, play into the Yo-Yo Ma? collaboration because that's also him interpreting Bach and then you interpreting the performance and that it seems but it also seems like you, that was really radical like or at least you had a lot of freedom there yeah I love that I love that that's one of my favorite things actually that Yo-Yo Ma piece um because I it's a it's so it is it is very it's actually my slight OCD part got to expose itself in that because I read about Bach when he wrote the um, the cello suites and he lived in this one town for six years and there are six suites and each suite has six movements and everything was sixes and I thought <laughs> Fantastic. So I will have, how am I going to tie all these elements together? I'll have six gestures. So I call, it's called six gestures. And each gesture somehow uh, reflects the emotion of the movement within my sixth suite. Um, and then I had six forms of storytelling within each movement. So one form of the storytelling, or is the cello playing itself of, of Yo-Yo Ma on the in Times Square or um, or wherever, or on rooftops, and the other one is the dance yeah. and the the ice dance, and then the other one is um, just a, a, a narrative like Bach speaking to camera about his life in Cajun. And anyway, so it was a very it was kind. Of, it was thrilling to me. I love that kind of collage but but you have to find an ordering notion for yourself, otherwise it just goes wacky. Yeah. And it looks probably from the for the outside like something that I just kind of put together yeah. in editing, because no. I had, it was my most carefully. I knew it would look like a pizza with too many toppings if I didn't have a real plan, you know. So it was a really carefully planned sort of explosion of types of storytelling and fact-telling. Really, I, I love that thing. Hmm. What about the, the inclusion of Torvo and Dean, which is super Canadian to be asking this, but it's like one interesting thing about figure skating is the relationship between music and, and, and the skating. And how, how did that play into your decision? Now? Isn't that skating ridiculous yeah. and the genies? Yeah. Was that not like hallucinogenic? I know. How it's... stupid that was? <laughs> and they wouldn't even like show the lead actor getting their award, but they'd show, anyway, I um, <laughs> hilarious, bad choice. Um, we all make bad choices sometimes. Um, the uh, uh, Torval and Dean, yeah, I was nervous about that because I don't really, 
skating, the aesthetic is not really my aesthetic generally. No. The, the clothing and the, the so I, <laughs> but I thought, well, this with this music, and if I can control their clothing, and then I thought, okay, I've got to make it austere, like Bach. Okay, I'm going to do the whole thing in black and yeah. white. And I'm not going to have any color. It's going to be the most austere thing you've ever seen in your life. And it's just going to be like Bach, you know, yeah. very rigorous. And, 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 and all the beauty is bursting out from this very, very strict form. Um, and I, um, I relinquished. I, I sort of backed away from that and sort of made each, each, suite, or each um, movement um, have like a dominant tone and, and made it very monochromatic within it. But um, no, I was nervous. But then I thought, I'm just being arrogant. I'm being arrogant the way the people uh, in, in 1720 were arrogant about the cello. The cello was not a, 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 a star instrument, it was a backup. It was, a, it was just a, like a support for the star instruments. And Bach, with the cello suites, made it a star. He just unaccompanied cello, just made it the star. And I thought, maybe that's what I can do with skating and make it, um, and I came to love shooting it because ice dancers can do what dancers would love to do, is just hold the line and go for, you know, across the street with one gesture, you know, and then instead of having to run across the street and boom, 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 you know, there's that you can, it's almost like you, they can do slow motion for you. Yeah. So, and then to add slow motion on top of it. Um, but, uh, so I came, I decided that I had the, a, a very um, elitist uh, attitude towards ice dancing and I, and I had to treat it like the beautiful art form it can be and and it there's one sequence in the almond that is one of my favorite bits of film that i've ever filmed and it's out of focus um it's mostly out of focus it's just the the dancer um uh, you know um on his own and he's uh dark blue against light and it's so out of focus that the, the figure is elongated yeah. love it <laughs> love it i used to say you know, if you've got a compelling story, a compelling situation, the whole thing can be out of focus. And it's and no, as long as it's in focus, it's still okay. And now I've even thrown focus yeah, out yeah. the window. I don't even care about that. Working in TV, do you notice differences with what you can do? I'm thinking of specifically in treatment. It seems like because of the... It's the, a terrible experience. Well, the rigor of that show seems like you were almost... Con like watching it felt like you were constrained formally. Like you could so only... constrained. I, I had a, a rule for myself is not to do series unless it's the pilot because it's not, they just, they don't need a director. It seems like you had more, in, in, in Tell Me, you had more control. Oh, yeah, because yeah, I did the, I set yeah. the look and the tone and I hired the actors and found the locations and, you know, put the paintings on the wall, you know, yeah. I mean, no, that was very, uh, very hands-on. I could I could have an impact there. I could, you know, I'm working with the person who wrote it and was producing it, so that it's obviously a collaboration. But um, no, that was not a happy situation for me because, like, I had one shot that I, you know, I come to that situation. I think, okay, two people sit in chairs. What can I do? How can I make it fresh? How can I keep keep the eye? Keep keep the keep 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 it keep it alive. What can I do? And I had the. I had these different shots that I did that 
they all they cut it out eventually. That's the other thing, too, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. And they just cut it out because it wasn't wasn't in treatment, and it was. <laughs> and oh my God, it was. He didn't like to be filmed from one side, um, so you had to do all of the filming from the other side. You didn't know how long the day was going to be because then Gabriel Byrne, who is a lovely, intelligent, fabulous man who had a giant, you know, job to do with that, with that show but um, he would uh, kind of get tired and yeah. he'd know and he would just sort of tap the um, AD on his shoulder and that's when your day was over so you didn't really know how many <laughs> shots you had left to do and it was um, I felt very like I they didn't need me I felt very useless I felt there were like scads of producers you'd say cut and then you'd look over your shoulder with like you know it <laughs> At first I didn't, and then I, I, I just said, cut, okay, moving on, fantastic, we're going to go over to here, blah, blah, blah. And they were, I was told, no, check in with us to see whether we're happy. So I'm like, ugh, it was awful. It's just, it was two days of shooting, and it was kind of like terrible. And, and um, Deborah Winger was um, really, really, really unpleasant to lots of people. Not, um, she was fine with me, but um, I just didn't respect her, uh, her approach to the work, you know. It was wasn't she wasn't she's not kind she was mean to people who are lower than her yeah. you know which is I never have I don't have patience for no. that you know like there is no lower <laughs> by the way <laughs> well it's so interesting because you have Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays it's fun to because the the subject matter is similar that you can see how the compositions drastically differ between those two because oh, watching Michael heaven. Tuesdays and Thursdays it's just so rich formally like. The, the even the scale of the shots, the fact that they varied excited me just to watch that because in treatment was so static. I knew what I was getting into with in treatment. I thought it would just be, you know, uh, you know, I, I didn't think I was going to be able to do swirling dollies or anything or what is it? Some Parkinson's cam. Okay. That's like yeah, where yeah. people are, or or you know, a camera with an ego. I knew it was going to be very very austere, but I still wanted to make something interesting. And I just thought it would be about the acting, but then when the actors were all, the you know, like on the anyway, that was, that was a problem. Um, Michael Tuesdays and Thursdays is one of the most fun times I've had yeah. filming. Yeah, it was with friends. Uh, you know, Bob Martin is a very, very intelligent and kind and funny and and great actor to direct. And Don McKellar has been a friend for years and years and years, and I just respect him and love him. I just love him. So, like, what else do you want, <laughs> you know? And then the scripts I thought were very funny, and then I got to work with Sandra Oh and Samantha B, and, you know, um, all kinds of people that I just found kind of very, and it was a new thing. It didn't have, you weren't repeating. You were creating some new, a new creature, you yeah. know? So, and, and it was, I was working with Doug Coe, who shot my first film. Yeah. It was wonderful to work with. Um, and he, uh, we, you know, we, we conceived shots as though, like, we didn't have much time. Time is the thing you lose with the budget slow, you know, you just lose time, so you can't, the finicky, interesting shots are really, really hard to pull off. But fortunately, there was enough time, excuse me, in advance so that we could at least plan some interesting stuff. Well, I really like the long shots. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that well, that was part of the goal is not to always have it in a yeah, yeah. bright, you know, TV close-up stuff. 
I love a good screamer close-up. I really do. But I, there we, we we were encouraged. The thing I discovered, and you're and is that now maybe I'll be proven wrong somewhere wrong with something. But right now I believe that comedy and dolly moves aren't uh, good bedfellows. <laughs> <laughs> that if if the camera is creeping. Like sideways or in or even out, it feels um, it feels significant. Austere, yeah. And there's something austere is the is the theme word of this interview. <laughs> um, but uh, but there's it, it it has a weightiness or something. Yeah. It feels it gives significance and feels cr creeping. Yeah. Um, and with comedy, you need to create the pace kind of on the. On the cut, there's a rhythm, yeah. and there's rhythms, and I just, I found myself not moving the camera at all. Yeah, I just with the couple of times I unless you do wacky, you yeah. know, I did one point where he's really feeling victorious, this poor <laughs> you know put upon hangdog of a boy, who's kind of finally you know vindicated in some way, and then he's been on TV, and um and then he's walking and he's high fiving <laughs> everybody, and it's slow motion, and I sort of made that a big exaggerated dolly move, right? But but um yeah, for the most part, I didn't just didn't do any of that. Maybe I'd have to do it. Maybe if you did really fast and fast and crisp moves, yeah. it would be interesting. It could be funny, but mostly. Or if you did like Austin Powers, where you're this, you know, carefully orchestrated thing where you're hiding his genitals behind something. <laughs> <and it> was, <laughs> that that was funny. That that had. <laughs> I have seen moves, so Dolly moves be funny. Like in the Cohen Brothers. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you remember the one over the the famous one over the um, the drunk on the counter? Yeah, it's no. basically yeah. in. It's not raising Arizona. It's in um, Blood Simple. Yeah. Blood Simple. No, 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 no. no, no. Is that it's not Lebowski, is it? No, it's not Lebowski. It's uh, the, anyway. It's, it's in Blood Simple, and he, he's moving along. The cat, the Godoli's move. Do you know? The lady killer. No, no, it's no, certainly no, not. No, 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 no. No. What are movie. you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Drink some more. No, um, I can uh, picture it, but I can't yeah. picture what it's. Anyway, from. he's moving along, and then there's a drunk on the table. On the table, and then the the the, the, the move goes over him. And I've never seen a dolly move get a laugh before in the theater. It's like <laughs> funny. Have you? Have it, has this made you more interested in, in working in comedy ever? I, the first film I made was a comedy. Oh yeah, definitely. But I mean, like, and I no, but I I, I didn't think of it as a comedy. I thought of it as just kind of amusing and more fable-like, you yeah. know, and more bit of a magical realist. I wanted it to have a very um, uh, light tone, but with an ache to it, you know. Um, and it ended up in the comedy shows in the, in, this, oh, really? in the video stores. Yeah, so it so I thought, oh, so I guess it's a comedy because it didn't because she's so funny and it it had funny stuff. So, um, but I hadn't really set out to be funny. Yeah. Since then, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I really loved it. I thought, what's wrong with me? Why am I not doing more of this? That's actually what I. So I'm you know coming around to where I started knowing the place for the first time. Is there something that's on the horizon? Or? Yeah. But I don't want to talk about it. Okay. Let's go back to that article, <laughs> the Golden Mill article. Uh, okay. Because that's about the future, but maybe not specifically to you. Um, have you considered, you, you advocate at a certain point, not maybe advocate, but even recognize the 
the kind of transmedia. This guy knows his stuff. It's good. It's good. The cross pollination of 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 now, like properties that exist, they have to exist across multiple platforms. Is, is that something that that interests you personally? Like a a, a text that exists on multiple. Media? Oh, I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by how an idea circulates the around the globe, you know, in an instant now. Yeah. In an instant, the whole world can be thinking the same, laughing at the same joke, yeah. or watching the same dog burping, or whatever it is. You know, <laughs> like it's a, it's a it's a, a fascinatingly um, um, collective experience, and I have always found um, America, especially sort of uh, consumed by these waves of hysteria or interest or enthusiasm and then it's over and then it's something else. Yeah. I think Canada's a bit more um, austere. No, <laughs> no but I think Canada's a little bit more, um, less, you know, tuned into exactly what's new right of, of the moment yeah. to, to its benefit and detriment sometimes. Um, but uh, I think that the whole world is getting to be kind of, to, 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 to be a, a simul um, kind of experience and it's going to be on every form and you know like this is I, I always think that I've got my iPhone here in a book yeah which I like and I like and I put my <laughs> iPad here in oh, a wow. book I thought that was like a legitimate book <laughs> no I know it's it's not it's my iPad and someone's giving a DVD what am I gonna do with that I don't have an but um so I like this, the oldest technology, housing, yeah, the newest. Yeah. But I think, I think these phones, for instance, that we're going to laugh at them after a while. We marvel at them now for what they're capable of doing, but we're going to laugh like that you have to hold it up yeah. to your head. There's going to be some other way. And it's so awkward to write on. It's so impossible. Someone's going to think of something much more ergonomic soon. And I was just listening to a TED Talk of... Um, this woman, um, Ariel Gertner, um, local, who's thought-controlled computers, you know, um, uh, computing. Um, uh, that's where we're going. I, I, for some reason, I think it was my dad. I, you know, I remember him bringing in an adding machine from home from work, and he said, this is the way of the future. And he brought this thing. It was so small. And you could push the buttons and it would add things. And we sat there and it was on the kitchen table and we all marveled at this bit. And he said, and when you're adults, it'll be the size of a card you can slip into your wallet. Like, wow. he, he yeah, saw yeah. it, you know? And I, and sort of, I, there's a kind of, it's one of the, it's, it's really sexy. It's one of the things that people are genuinely, like, do you not get into a, a technology conversation with everybody? Um, at, like at every gathering, there's some at some point it goes. You get onto apps. Well, it's sleep. Or, and it's tactile. They, they're, they're and just, it does yeah. what you want, yeah, and it yeah. responds, and it's like you know, it's like it's sex. It's, it's yeah. physical, right? It's um, it's a sensual thing. So I've always been very uh, seduced by it. Um, but I remember when I was just starting to make films, I was listening to a tape, like a cassette tape that I had bought on the street in New York City, and it was um, Laurie Anderson oh, yeah, yeah. speaking um, to at, at, at lecturing somewhere, and she said, don't get seduced into thinking the technology, if you had better technology, your work would be better. 
And you can't find someone who's more, you know, enthusiastic about new, yeah, you know, yeah. technological forms. So, and I, and I, that stuck, I thought, yeah, because that's a very seductive thought to think if I had a better camera, if I had a better this, you know, the better, that the work would be better, but the work itself is separate. Yeah. This is fun, this is sexy, the, you know, the way you can do things is, is uh, th those are just the pencils. Yeah. It's what you draw that counts. Well, it also sounds like you're describing Aldous Huxley's feelings in, in Brave New World where you feel the film, like you put your hands on and you feel it. I think, yeah, I think that we're going to have things that feel like a cat, yeah. you know, like are that are like are really sensual and really incredibly chairs that hug you and fill you with sound and you're like, <laughs> um, no, I think it's really, I, I, I would love to live forever to see where it all goes. Unless the Armageddon comes, and so we're all just scrabbling in the streets. Like, wouldn't you attack the electrical source of electricity if you wanted to cripple a country or a or a civilization? Well, I think we'll cripple ourselves. Like, I mean, my generation, I feel like kind of nostalgia for non-technological or at least less technological things because there's too many voices, there's too many cooks in the kitchen, like. There's almost a nostalgia for like when people had a common like when the Rolling Stones would be playing and you'd all know that. Whereas now it's like there's no common voice. There is, right? There are. Um, there's no. Um, it's changed forms. Like it used to be that every watched the same TV show. Yeah, yeah. And that you could, wherever you'd go, you could talk to so and so about what happened on the show last night. Yeah. And everybody watched it at the same time. And that was, it used to be that everybody, there was a handful of novels that every self-respecting yeah. intellectual had read. And that that was the point of commonality. Now it's all so specialized and splintered. Yeah. Um, television is so specialized and splintered. Um, feature films, only the four quadrant tentpole franchises, right? The, yeah. uh, the Harry Potters and the Dark Knights and the whatever, they, they, they're, uh, still sort of collect Avatar, everybody feels, oh, I should see it, I guess, just to know what's going on. The big, big circus top kind of movies are still kind of collective experiences. Um, but they're not subversive. I think that's the nostalgia, is that when there was the common, only so many things that existed that everyone knew, the opportunity for subversion was higher because now it seems like if you do something subversive, it's just marketed at the choir like you're preaching to the choir, right? Like you're only going to be marketed towards the people already in tune to that. Yeah, but don't you can put whatever you want on YouTube and it hits or it doesn't. Yeah. If it catches fire, yeah. it could be the most subversive thing in the world That's as long true, as yeah. it's not, you know, sexually explicit. Yeah. It could be or or, or promoting killing. Yeah. Um, you you do have access to the world's ear. You have access. You do. And you can be you could be sort of promoting um, you know, profound anarchy. Um, and if you do it in a way that catches people's attention. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering because I found like the, so the Golden Mail. So I would Mail, beg to differ. Yeah. The Golden Mail Manifesto, I, I found it kind of optimistic, like very optimistic. Mine or everybody's? No, yours. Mine, yes. <laughs> it seemed like to me, like my first reaction was that I agreed with all of these points, but I'm wondering like, does the system allow them to exist or will it allow them to exist? Oh, yeah, but you have to. Optimism is, I, whenever people say, oh, is the glass half full, half empty, I think it's... Well, first you ask, is it absent? And then... <laughs> it's, it's the absent... <laughs> no, but it, 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 it's both. 
Yeah. I don't want to have to pick one or the other. I want to see clearly how much this glass has in it. Um, it I'm not, but I believe in um, that if you envision a world you want, you're more likely to get that world. If you would, if you focus on the world you don't want, yeah. if you focus on the on the obstacles, if you focus on failures, then that you that's what you'll get. Well, you can so it's it's almost it's a completely opportunistic or not a, it's a completely um, utilitarian um, decision. Yeah. That when I have a public voice, um, say what can work, because that that's every, most people say what can't work and what doesn't work and hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Those people, there, there are millions of them, yeah. and it's kind of a, it's a, it's, it's, it's not cool necessarily to say, hey, but this could be fantastic, but this could be great. Why don't we try this? Hey, I've got an idea. I don't know if it's going to work, but let's try it. It's going to be fun. Those people and that attitude is, is going to create more, and it's more fun. It's more. <laughs> so yes, it's optimistic, but it's deliberately optimistic. I'm not. Um, I could have written that exact same manifesto in a negative voice. Yeah. I could have said, "Why is it that Canada, you know, doesn't have, and you know, after years and years of trying, we still don't have our own public broadcaster, and the one and the shows they have aren't, you know?" I could have done that. And so, why is it that, you know, like what we need is a whole new bunch of people in charge because they're, they're terrible, you know? Instead, I point to one who I think is good. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, you it's just I name names. I like. <laughs> I don't know. I just—it's more useful. It's how I'm—it's how I'm designed. It's how I'm designed, even in terms of my politics about feminism or you know gay politics. I'm very—I—I I can't be the one who says, "Look," and then they strangled that guy, and then they ripped that guy, and then that girl got fired from that job, and that like I get so depressed I never want to get out of bed. Yeah. I'm like, look. Look what so and so did. Look what Margaret Gersonar did. You look what you know. Like I'm, I'm inspired by uh, uh, achievement and 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 um, uh, depressed by you know. We need people sort of saying this is an injustice. This is terrible. I'm just not that person. It's just I, I serve I serve the function of. Hey, wouldn't this be cool? <laughs> One thing I wonder about that manifesto is that it seems like you understand that the people that are saying, "Oh, this would be exciting, this would be interesting," you acknowledge that they kind of go to the states to then realize those those no, ideas. No, I don't think they do. You know, like there's some extremely talented people who stay here, um, and Canada is a cool place to live. And this isn't just me being positive. It really yeah. isn't. It's a it's a very progressive culture, and it's a very liberal culture, and it's a very um, accepting culture, um, and we have a very high proportion of smart artists here, I think, and we and we've got systems that allow us. I when I work in New York, I'm working in the junkiest little rooms. Even if we're <laughs> like, they, they, like we have you, you have no idea how sort of rich and luxurious yeah. it is for us here, you know, and the government support and everything. Like you have to be thankful for what we have here and I have worked here I worked here for the beginning of my my um, my career I, I somehow intuitively knew that there wouldn't be enough money in this country and there are enough people um, for me to have the career that I ultimately wanted yeah. so uh, I hate saying that because career is such a crossword I mean 
to be able to do the to have the opportunities opportunities and work with yeah. some of the people you know um career i kind of avoid thinking about career i just go from thing to thing that matters to me well you talk and about I, collaboration like wanting to have the opportunity for collaboration with people from the with states beckett yeah. with you know austin yeah. with um with miramax with harvey weinstein how does this guy think yeah. you know i mean um, I've had some uh, David Aukin, who used to run Channel Four. I've had I've had great contact with people who whose taste I love. You know, it's finding those people. It's finding those people. That's really really hard sometimes. And then you know, then then there's Adam, who's worked very differently. Who's so you know, he works with the same people over and over and over again. Um, he's you know expanding. He's going to a bigger production now, but. Um, uh, I, I, that's just how I am. What I'm interested, based on your own work, is is where a, a Canadian cinema that's more formalistic exists now, because it seems like there are less films that have that same kind of reckless abandon when it comes to like the formal quality. You can do it now. Well, you have Guy Madden, but like I'm, I feel like that we're. But you can do it. We have the machine. We have the mechanics. Well, I think um, Quebec has the mechanics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but the two, the films that people are celebrating from Quebec, they're not actually that adventurous formally. I, I guess Denis Côté is yeah. incredible. Like, and, and Villeneuve, yeah, yeah he, he, he really plays too. And Falardo, like, uh, maybe, like Monsieur Bazaar is a little more streamlined, but like, it's not me, I swear, is, is very formal. It's mm. excitingly formal. Monsieur Bazaar is like a perfect film to me. Oh, yeah. I just, I went with some really kind of hard-bitten is a terrible word, but... Like cynical, cynical, yeah. tough, seen it all, been there, people, four of us, and they came out softer. <laughs> they came out. Everybody's voice was softer. We had our whole dinner was somehow full of empathy, and um, I, like we need what film can give us. We need that empathy that it can give us. We need the stimulation. We need the. But I think empathy is the giant thing that fiction in general gives us, and it's um, it's uh, and it teaches us forgiveness. You know, it teaches us. I'm just reading Alain de Botton. Okay. Have, have you read his no, thing? No. A- atheism for um, no religion for atheists. No. Oh, read it. It's <laughs> fascinating. It's exactly what I've been saying for years. I never heard anybody say. Um, of course, he says it way better than I could. But uh, he's that religion. Is uh, is left a hole? That yes, I don't believe in this, you know, gods who, you know, like he's not superstitious in any way. He doesn't believe in God, but there's so much that religion served. Like what that that how how can we fill it again? This getting together as a community, not having to set up a dinner, not having to set up a play date, not having to set up, but you just get together once a week and you reflect and you sing, yeah. you know, and. Um, the kind of for, the, the 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 rituals, the rituals of, of forgiveness, the rituals of community, the rituals of breaking bread together, the uh, the architecture, the music. There's so much that religion gave us, but we have to find another way to get it. And I and I put that onto art. Yeah. In my little life, I've sort of tried to make things that sort of soar that can make you feel a bit of a reverence and a little bit of wonder that and, and I'm trying to recreate some of the feeling that religion gave 
but without all the exclusionary condemning sort of aspects of it. But the sublime for me in your films is the formalism. Like that is mm. the, the quality that that I want to be there. Hmm. What would you like to see me make? Just I, I love the adaptations. I love where they diverge from the source material. I love where they the formalism breaks through and that there's this kind of controlled quality but it's also control for something improvisational or, or dramatic to come through i mean i think that that's where all of the, the great films break apart from that is when they they diverge from the story just like communicating a specific story and, and you have, like the detours in a way that like yeah, the, yeah. yeah so do i okay i'll do some of that for you okay right. <laughs> Oh, I feel like I've got a bit straighter than I want to in the last little while, and I'm, I'm going to play a bit more. And it, and it's um, it's encouraged. It is encouraged. People want you to think, be be, like they want surprise. You yeah. know, they want surprise. They want a degree of the familiar, yeah. and then just something that takes them to another little place or big place. Yeah, I'm. I'm toying, I have this idea, and I can't decide whether or not it's a series or uh, a television series or a feature. And so it really is making me think about what is the difference. Especially with adaptation, it seems like now we're realizing that, you know, maybe there can be like, it's not just a miniseries, but like a self-contained season that is how we deal with adaptation for, for novels. Which makes so much more sense. I've always said novels are too long for yeah. a feature. And then everybody says, no, but the novel is so much richer, and you forgot this, and you forgot that. It's just novellas yeah. are great for features. Or short or stories. Short stories. Yeah. They're fantastic. Take the blow up. It's revisiting that. <laughs> Away from her, or um, it's funny, I watched no the country. Benjamin Button, and I thought, that should have been a short. And then I found <laughs> out that it was a short story. Yeah. And I was like, um, yeah, no, there's all kinds of uh, broke back mountain. Yeah. You know, was a short, was it was a it's kind of novel, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, or a short story. Yeah. Anyway, um, no, it's it's true that you can have a greater arc. You can you can uh, explore more characters and richer themes if you're going if you're breaking it up and doing it over six hours as opposed to an hour and a half. Well, no two. one acknowledges the fact that a novel is chapters. There are distinct episodic moments. Yeah, like, you're it's right. not just a you're single. Right. You're right, I didn't think of that. You're right. Um, the, but I had a funny conversation with HBO where they were doing um, uh, Middlesex. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, me, please, can I do that? I want to do that. I want to direct that or want to write that. And they said, no, we have a writer. Um, we'll let you know. Um, I haven't heard from them, so I don't know. But but they were, and they were going to do it as a miniseries. So I was talking to miniseries guys, and I said, I, I would, that's fantastic. It's a great miniseries. It's great. And he said, well, I think it's going over to series. Yeah. And somehow I thought, what's the hermaphrodite up to this week? <laughs> I actually thought that the form would be trivializing of the content. I'm wondering if like, the way we square that circle is to have a series, but have it have a defined length where it's like, it's only going to be this many. Like, it's not going to be like a five episode miniseries, but we're going to recognize that it's only going to be this I long. think that that is it's really important sometimes because Otherwise, you can't have anything, any action have serious consequence. Because yeah. if you can't have your star die, yeah. 
Right, Mad Men, they couldn't kill off Draper, right? I mean, they couldn't. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> no, they couldn't. But I, was, I know the writer, Sandy yeah. Chalice, who's great, and she said that they're very, very free. You just can't kill him. Yeah. So, um, um, but there's, it's very, you know, the, it ends, the, the events end up having less consequence, I think, if you are trying to imagine it going on forever. Yeah. Well, people, like audiences are so excited when, like, the creators of Lost say like, oh, we have like a set ending. Like they, it seems like the audiences want that. They, they don't want to have to think like you're improving each week to try to continue this. Mm -hmm. That you have a, you have an end date. You have a, you know where the story's going. I think end. especially for drama, yeah. for, for 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 comedy, you don't mind if it's someone who's funny and, yeah, yeah. and they're funny again and then they're funny again. You know, you don't mind so much. Like, I don't need to know. In Modern Family, that okay, yeah, you know yeah. that they're gonna die. So, <laughs> um, you know, um, for comedy, I think it's somehow we permit ourselves. But I get sick of, you know, how you like films are people. Yeah. And if you meet someone and they just joke and 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 they never get to any substance, then you are kind of tired of them eventually, right? You like you're funny at first and they're fun, but then you get tired. Yeah. And if there's someone who's dead serious and you're like they never can, they can never, you know, they never see the absurdity of things, then you get tired of that. But so I, I, my dream is the perfect mix. Yeah. You know, is the uh, man. This is an absurd place and tragedies happen and people die in gutters and the worst worst things happen and and then it's funny even in the worst moment and to have that perfect balance is really uh, I, I always feel like I would I, if, if there was something that I wish that people would take from my work in the end is um, is a, a sense of the uh, wonder of this little life we have but also the um, the, the incompleteness, that there's beauty in the incompleteness. I don't think I've ever actually ever really said that in any of the, my films, but um, that the beauty is in its incompleteness because that's always the frustrating thing, right? When you're enjoying something, you know it's going to end and that's yeah. sad. But if you could find that fact beautiful, if you could find beauty in that fact, then you've got it. You know, you <laughs> this is how the preposterously positive I am. You've made me reconcile Deadwood. <laughs> oh, I don't know. It's all a game. Was Middlesex before or after corrections was decided that they were, they were gonna, HBO was going to pursue? I heard about it before. Okay. I heard about it like uh, two, three years ago. So I haven't, and I haven't, I haven't heard that they came up with a satisfactory. I mean, so many projects are started yeah. and not completed. I personally have authored most of them. <laughs> um, so much you work, you work so hard on things, and then they just don't happen. Um, I don't know if that's, I don't know if how, what my ratio is. Cahiers de Cinema did a um, a, uh, uh, a whole issue just devoted to projects that weren't made. Oh, really? Yeah. And you know all the usual suspects all spoke about the films that they had that they bled into and they cried over and just never got made. Yeah, I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah. You, you guys should do that. Like, well, you, do you, you have do one that. that you can contribute right now? Oh, I have too many. I just spent. I I was working on a uh, a film in a set in Burma. Okay. And it was in a prison story, and political prisoners in, in Burma. My brother runs an uh, organization there, the, the Burmese Relief Center, and 
he knows everybody. He knows all the players. He like he was, and I met with political prisoners, and I ate, you know, what they ate, and yeah. I saw the shackles. And I mean, like I went right into it. Um, it's a very different thing for me, but I felt like wow, I have this inside view through my brother, and um, someone's got to do something. But now the political landscape has changed so okay. drastically, and will keep changing. That I, it's. It's not, for, you know, it used to be that I was one of the few outsiders who had an angle mm -hmm. and who had happened to have some filmmaking skills that I could go in and tell this story. But now I think it has to be told by the Burmese. Enough people have been released. I don't think it's me who should be telling that story. It's like, what's this girl from Toronto doing to, you know, to tell the story? So that's one that's kind of, if not dead, on the back burner, but really important and spent I slaved over the script and many drafts yeah, and yeah. went there and took pictures and since before I made I heard the mermaid singing I was working on this thing called the case of the missing mother and it was like Nancy Drew comes to reality and discovers all the things that weren't in her books <laughs> <laughs> and she starts aging at a rate of, a rate of knots because she's been 22 for 18 or 18 for 22 years or something and you know, she discovers moral ambiguity and genitals and you know, like all kinds of, you know, anyways, it was a kind of a, and that was before Back to the Future was written, <laughs> you know? And I did drafts and drafts. I had all the money. I had a German producer who was gonna give me all the money and then I backed out because I felt the script wasn't ready and was mad at me. Well, it still could be ready. Maybe, but I feel like maybe it's time has passed. I don't know. I don't know. I've just been, every time I dust it off in between projects and I look at it and I think, yeah, and then I write five more drafts and then I go, no. And then, so, <laughs> um, oh, I've got so many. I did um, Transit of Venus, beautiful novel. I had uh, Guy Pierce in and somebody else. Um, and didn't quite get going. I had another film of co-production with uh, just endless endless <laughs> endless i have to think there's a reason they didn't get made <laughs> well i think that's a good point okay <laughs> thanks so much pleasure really no i i could have continued but brian was giving me the sign like i don't know what it meant but <laughs> no, stop the bitch we've run out of okay <laughs> discs to <laughs>